Cyrus is a huge figure in world history and a very big figure in Bible prophecy. He's mentioned in Ezra, in Chronicles, in Jeremiah, and especially in the book of Isaiah. And remarkably, this Gentile king becomes a type of the Lord Jesus Christ and his work of conquest, and particularly the destruction of Babylon. He's called there in chapter 44, verse 28, Cyrus, he is my shepherd. When you come down to chapter 45, it opens with thus to his anointed, to his Messiah, as it is in the Hebrew. And again, he's called my servant. Verse 28 of chapter 44, he shall perform all my pleasure. He was a servant in the hand of God. He was God's anointed for this particular purpose. And he was to be a shepherd to the children of Israel. And that's all remarkable when you remember that Isaiah wrote his prophecy about 170 years before Cyrus came on the scene. It's incredible to think that Isaiah wrote these words while the temple and the city were still in full operation. He's writing about the time of the restoration that would be performed through the hand of Cyrus about 170 years before it actually happened. Before the nation went into captivity, Isaiah is predicting the mechanism of their return. If we look at chapter 45 and verse 13, this is what he says about Cyrus. I have raised him up in righteousness. Think about that. And I will direct his path. I will make straight his paths. He shall build my city and he shall let go my captives. And it would not be for the benefit of the Persians that they would do this. Not for profit or price, saith Yahweh of hosts. This was a decision that had no economic sense for the Persians to send back this bunch of Jews back to recreate the city of Jerusalem. It was done because God had commanded that it should be so. And so we're going to be dealing with a man that is very much part of the prophecy of Isaiah, along with the other books that I mentioned to you before. But in Isaiah, he's referred to by name. And he's referred to under an enormous number of titles that God gives him. Let's go back and pick up the record of history. We all remember Nebuchadnezzar's image. Babylon was the head of gold. They were a magnificent kingdom. They had plundered the world for all the treasures of the, of the, of the empires of the world that they conquered. But their kingdom was not to last very long. And God predicted through Daniel the rise of the kingdom of Persia. That part of the image that has two arms, but then develops into one. And that was the Medo-Persian Empire. The two arms became eventually one under Cyrus. The Medes and the Persians combined together, and then Cyrus took over the whole show and ran it as one combined kingdom. Very uniquely portrayed in the chest and arms of silver in Daniel's image. So there was a prediction in the days of Daniel that this would come to pass which was only about 70 years away or less. Well, thinking about Babylon, Babylon consolidated its power in 610 to 580 BC, included in which was the destruction of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple, the carrying away of the captives into Babylon, there to hang their harps on the willows of Babylon and being unable to sing the songs of Zion. But 70 years from their captivity, God would bring them back again 
and he would bring down the Babylonian Empire in great destruction in the night of Belshazzar that we read about in Daniel chapter 5. And it would be done by the agency of Cyrus. So here's a man that is raised up by God to do three particular things. To bring down Babylon, to restore the temple, and to restore the people of Jerusalem and, and Israel back to their own land. And that's the work that Cyrus was to perform. Though the Babylonians thought they were secure, God was preparing in the east a mighty army. And the Persians were noted for their tremendous number of armies, uh, the men that they had and the resources they had to go into battle. You've only got to read what was ranged against Alexander in later years to see how the Persians could raise millions of men to put them on the battlefield. And so they came and prepared to burst into history to take on the Babylonians. And by the height of their empire, once they had conquered the world, as it was then known, the Persian Empire extended across an enormous area of the Middle East. You can see that it goes right down through Egypt, right up into Greece, all of what we know today as Turkey and the Kazakhstans and so forth, right across towards the boundaries of India, Pakistan, Afghanistan, right up into Bactria, all of that was taken by the Persians. And it was under Cyrus, and later on under the different Persian kings, that that was accomplished. But it was Cyrus who started the, the coming out of the, of the little area of the Medes and pushing out to take over firstly Turkey and then to take over the city of Babylon as well and to eventually take over the whole Babylonian Empire and then to go further into places like Greece. The Persian rulership and the Persian conquest led to a number of things which have changed the world ever since. They were the first people to build highways and to build roads to connect their empire. And it was called the King's Highway that went from Babylon right up to Greece. They created the world's first postal service that you read about in the book of Esther. It was a very well-structured organisation of 127 provinces and a very civilised form of government that the Persians brought to the world. And so they brought a lot of benefits. Perhaps it was one of the greatest of the kingdoms when it came to the way that it was run. But let's come back to what Isaiah is talking about in his prophecy here. The servant prophecies of Isaiah. We need to look at this very carefully. When you come to Isaiah chapter 39, it's an end of the historical section and the current section dealing with the kings of Judah. What you have in Isaiah 40 to 66 is a very new section of Isaiah, most of which is prophecy or things relating to prophecy particularly relating to the future. Chapter 54 to 66 is very much about the future. So we have these prophecies of Isaiah to look at. Built inside that section is a, a section from chapter 40 to 45 where God paints a courtroom scene and he puts the nations and the idols of the nations on trial. He challenges the God of wood and stone. You know, you know the mockery he makes where he says, well, you know, this, this man, he cuts a tree down and he, he, he shapes it into a thing and then he makes his tea with the, 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 wood, the wood that's left over and then he worships the idol. And it's just crazy, he says, the people worship wooden idols. So we have a court scene presented. It starts off in chapter 41. Keep silence. God says, everybody listen. Keep silence in court. And then God asks a whole list of questions through chapter 40. Who hath made this? Who hath done this? Who hath done that? And he puts out there his achievements, his creative achievements. And he challenges the nations to come up with some, some witnesses against that, 
to defend themselves against their gods who can't do any of those things. So he says to the nations in chapter 43 and verse 9, produce your witnesses. Let's look at that, chapter 43 and verse 9. Let the nations be gathered together, let the people be assembled. Who among them can show and declare this and show the former things? Let them bring forth their witnesses that they may be justified. Let them hear and say it is truth. And so God challenges the nations. Can your gods do what I can do? And of course they can't. So God says, you can't produce any witnesses on behalf of your gods. But I've got a witness, says God. Israel is my witness. You watch what I've done with Israel. You watch how my promises will come to pass, says God. And so God produces the, the best witness there's ever been to his existence, and that is the nation of Israel. And then when you move to chapter 44, God begins to challenge the gods of the nations that he alone can predict the future, and they cannot. And so we have this, this challenge in chapter 44 and verse 24. Thus saith Yahweh, thy Redeemer, he that formed thee from the womb, I am the Yahweh that makes all things, that stretches forth the heavens, that spreads forth the earth by myself. I frustrate the tokens of the diviners. All those that think they can find some way to get to their gods, I frustrate them. Their wisdom is turned backwards. But I confirm the words of my servant. If my prophet has said it, I will make sure it comes to pass. I perform the counsel of my messengers. That, and then I say to Jerusalem, you will be inhabited. You can imagine how confusing that was to people who were living in Jerusalem that was still going as it always had been, as part of the kingdom of Judah. To the cities of Judah you shall be built, and their cities were not yet destroyed. God says, I'm telling you the time is coming when those words will mean something to you. Because I can see the future, and I can see the future redemption for Israel beyond that. I can tell you how Babylon will be destroyed in verse 27. I will dry up the rivers. And who's going to do it? There's going to be a man 170 years time called Cyrus. And he'll do it. And the gates won't be shut. Remarkable prophecies that God is making. He says, which among the gods of the nations can talk like this? Well, I can tell you exactly what's going to happen in 150 to 170 years' time, says God. And I weave these things into the record. But also in this section of Isaiah, between chapter 40 and chapter 53, Isaiah weaves into the record three different servants. And so you always need to be careful when you're reading the record, which servant am I reading about? Now let's look at those three servants that are weave, that woven into the record by Isaiah. Before we do that, just pick up in verse 11 of chapter 46. You see, here is the difference between Yahweh and other gods. God knows the future, he controls the future, he makes it happen. In verse 11 of chapter 46, calling a ravenous bird from the east, a man that executeth all from a far country that executeth my will. I've spoken it, it shall come to pass, I have purposed it, I will also do it. And so God says, look, remember the things of old. Nobody's like me. I declare the end from the beginning. My counsel shall stand, says God. You see, that's the great challenge of any other God that people choose to worship. Do they have control of the future? Do they even know what the future is? And if they've predicted it, can they make it happen? Well, Yahweh, the God of heaven, certainly can. 
So that's the section that we're in. Now look at these different servants that are woven into the record. The first one, of course, is Israel, the national servant. God says, my servant, my witnesses that I have chosen, but they're blind. They can't see. They don't really understand what I'm trying to do with them. So here's a servant that God says, are certainly his witnesses. He wants them to be his servants, but they keep on going astray. They keep getting lost because they're blind. But they are a servant, nevertheless. The second servant is the Lord Jesus Christ, the servant that God upholds. Again, something that is very much future is the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Called in Isaiah 53 verse 11, my righteous servant. And the Lord Jesus Christ would come. And so much of this prophecy around these sections have to do with the work of the Lord Jesus Christ as God's supreme servant that would do his will. But there's a third servant woven through these records, and of course, that is Cyrus. Verse 11 of chapter 46, calling this ravenous bird from the east, someone who would come like a vulture upon the carcass of Babylon, a man who would execute my counsel. There's the servant relationship of, of, of Cyrus to the work of God. And God was going to use him to demonstrate his power in the earth. Okay, so that's a little, just a little aside about the three servants that come through these chapters between 40 and 53. We need to, to go through the record, and it doesn't hurt sometimes to colour in the different colours of which servant is being discussed at any particular time, because it can be a bit, bit confusing until you know where the lines are. Okay, let's come back to Cyrus. As we said, 170 years before his time, Isaiah was writing about him and giving us his name. So, look what Isaiah says. I am Yahweh that confirmeth the word of his servant, that is the prophets like Isaiah and Jeremiah, that performs the counsel of his messengers, that saith to Jerusalem, you shall be inhabited, to the cities of Judah, ye shall be built, and I will raise up the decayed places thereof, that saith to the deep, be dry, and I will dry up thy rivers. And God would do that through the agency of this man Cyrus. Cyrus, my shepherd, he shall perform my pleasure. He shall say to Jerusalem, you shall be built and the temple, your foundation shall be laid. And you see, God gave great details. There's a clear mission that was given to Cyrus. Conquer Babylon, release the Jews, ensure the temple is built, restore Jerusalem. And you see, that's what he had to do. That was the work that God raised him up to do. Conquer Babylon, release the Jews, build the temple, and restore Jerusalem. Now, look at the way God views this man. Quite amazing to think this is God talking about a Gentile king. He's the only Gentile to be called Yahweh's anointed, or as it has in the Hebrew, the Messiah. He was, as far as Israel in captivity were concerned, the coming of the Messiah to bring them back to their land. Anointed for the purpose, ordained of God for that particular role. And it was God's unique handiwork to save Israel. Look at chapter 41 and verse 2. Who raised up the righteous man from the east, called him to his foot as a servant, gave him the nations before him, made him to rule over kings, and gave him the dust as the dust of his sword, as the driven stubble to his bow. So Cyrus became God's servant to perform this will. 
Rotherham has for verse 2, he raised him up in righteousness. So he was God's unique handiwork to save Israel. The main thing God wanted him for was to be a tool in God's hand for the humiliation of Babylon, to restore Israel and to build the temple. Quite remarkably, he becomes the only Gentile king, in fact the only Gentile, to typify the work of Christ. When you think about all the people who were types of Christ, like Joseph and Moses and Jeremiah, and so many others that actually at some stage in their life typified the work of Christ, here is a Gentile king typifying the work of Christ and particularly the conquering of Babylon and the restorative work of the Jews, which Christ will do in the future. He's so different to Alexander the Great. In Zechariah 9, Alexander the Great is portrayed to us as the total opposite to the Lord Jesus Christ. A man who was unjust, unfair, proud, arrogant, ended up putting everybody in the grave and could save nobody, is contrasted to the Lord Jesus Christ who did just the opposite of all those things. Alexander was a contrast. Cyrus is a type of Christ, a remarkable position. And we'll talk about that type a little bit later on. I want to just digress now to the story of Cyrus himself. And if you want to read up something really fascinating, spend a few minutes going through Roland's ancient history on Cyrus. It's a very good read. Remember the Persian bear had two sides, one of which became unequal. One side was lifted up higher than the other. The lower side was the first kingdom, which was the kingdom of the Medes. And the Medes and the Persians lived alongside of each other over in the territory we now know as Iran. And the king of the Medes was a man called Astyages. This king, king of the Medes, had this dream which made him very much afraid. His dream said, you're going to have a grandson who would one day rule in his place. And like most kings, remember Herod, they don't like to talk about people taking over their jobs. So what he did, he ordered his own grandson, who'd just been born, to be killed. And he sent his, his chief steward called Harpagus to take the baby grandson and to, to get rid of him and to kill him. Now Harpagus, who was not so loyal to the king as the king thought, uh, disobeyed the king. He couldn't take this child and kill it. So he took it home and to his own village and he had a shepherd raise him for the first 12 years of his life. But at the same time, making sure the boy was properly educated, which is something that the Persians valued. Now, you need to understand something about Cyrus. His mother was a Persian. His father, of course, was the son of Astyages. So he actually had a Persian mother, and then he was sent into a Persian area to be educated. He grew up understanding what a shepherd was. But like the Persians, they were so different to the Medes. The Medes were crude. They were cruel, they were vicious, and they were immoral. The Persians had much higher aspirations about life. And Cyrus was educated to be an honourable person with character and culture. At the age of 12, Harpagus brought him back to the court of the king. Everybody now realising this was the lost grandson, the king couldn't kill this boy anymore. He had to take him into the court. 
When the king first met the boy in the gardens of the palace, he was amazed at the confidence of the lad. This lad stared back at him, held himself like a true prince. And of course the king realised that perhaps his dream was coming true. He couldn't get rid of Cyrus because of the pressures of the court, but he decided to punish Harpagus. And what he did to Harpagus was to make him kill and eat his own son, which just shows you the crudeness and the cruelty of the Medes. Anyway, he became adopted into the, Persian, into the to courts of the kings of the Medes. And when he was old enough, Harpagus, uh, Astyages, told him about the plans for the way that Persia was about to, ex to, to extend and try and take over the Babylonian world. What Astyages didn't know was that Cyrus was plotting with Harpagus, he was pretty miffed about having to eat his own son, he was plotting with Cyrus now to overthrow the kingdom of the Medes. And so they did. Eventually they took control of Medo-Persia about BC 548. And, you know, there are differences. When you deal with the dates of the Persian kings, you've got to be flexible because anyone that's tried to do that knows how difficult the records are. But roughly around 548, he took control of Medo-Persia in totality. I want to just say something about Cyrus and the Medes. You know, Cyrus was far more civilised than the Medes. When he went to the court of the king of the Medes, he was appalled at the drunkenness, at the immorality, at the wasted lives that they were leading. And they tried to corrupt him. This, this teenager comes along and they think, well, let's make him like us. And they tried to ply him with drink. And it's well worth reading what he wrote in Rollins, where he said, you know, they made themselves look stupid. Why would a person want to do that? And Cyrus resolved to keep his virtue and to keep his self-control in life. And eventually he was able to get rid of the kingdom of the Medes and take them over completely. Once he got power, he now began the conquest of the then known world. And his first conquest was to take on the kingdom of Lydia. Now the kingdom of Lydia existed under a man called Croesus. And there's a little map of where the Kingdom of Lydia is. You'll see there that the Kingdom of Lydia basically is what we say is modern-day Turkey, or the, or the western side of it particularly, um, including the cities of Revelation are there. And one of them was his capital, which was the city of Sardis. And, and it was a kingdom. The Persians had come right across toward it, and now they decided to move on the Kingdom of Lydia. And Croesus uh, was a very wealthy man. And this is a part, of course, they're looking for plunder. He was known as, as the, you know, almost like the Midas touch, but he was a man that had accumulated huge stores of gold. And, and you can see there that saying that as rich as Croesus came back uh, to this particular king. So when he heard that the Persians were coming, what Croesus did was to send to the oracle at Delphi. Now, I'll say quite a bit about this oracle at Delphi because it's quite important to the story. When you're talking about an oracle, it means a place where people communicate with the gods. Here at Enfield, we talk about going to the oracle and we speak to Brother Des Mansa. But it's talking about you go and you look at the, the place where the gods communicate. It's, it's a place of divination where people actually try and convince you they've got messages from the gods. The place of consultation. And it was, it was serviced by particular women priestesses who 
who were the medium that the gods spoke to. And then there were all these other priests around the place who would then interpret what she had said. Just a bit of information on the oracle at Delphi. This is some of the ruins of one of the oracles of Delphi, the oracle of Apollo, which is the one we believe that Croesus sent his man to. Um, that's what's left of it. But this was a particular sacred place where, in Greece, that they had this communication with the many gods that lived on Mount Olympus. And you might know something about the Greek gods. Uh, and it was, it was done in a very impressive way. The, when they had this ceremony, there would be incense floating around. And there would be this special chair that this priestess would sit on. Um, and all the other priests would chant and they'd get the music going and so forth. Um, and then she would do something rather interesting. So sitting on this particular chair of communication, she would then start chewing the sacred bay leaves. And we might wonder what sort of leaves they really were, but they were obviously something that made her hallucinate. Um, and she would drink water from the sacred spring, which is probably gin or something else. But anyway, she'd start to get these visions and she'd start to do this speaking in tongues, whatever she did. Um, and then around her, the, the attendant priests would actually take what she'd said and they would make up a story from it to give an answer to the inquirer that had come. And, and Croesus had sent his servants over to get an answer from the oracle, shall I attack Cyrus? And that was his question. Well, he got an answer. And it's a brilliant answer when you think about it. It's a bit like what you read in the, the stars in the paper. Anybody could apply it to themselves. But what happened was, this is what they said. To the messenger from Croesus, they said this. If Croesus crosses the river Halles, now Cyrus had come and put his troops on the other side of the river Halles, which was a few miles from Sardis. If he crosses the river Halles to attack Cyrus, he shall destroy a great empire. It was a very clever message, wasn't it? Because it couldn't be wrong. You think about it. Whoever won the battle would destroy a great empire. Either he would destroy the Persians or the Persians would destroy him. But he wasn't listening very carefully, was he? He didn't actually take that as a warning. He took that as being evidence that he would win the battle. So when the answer came to his request, King Croesus was delighted. He immediately sent his troops out to attack Cyrus at the river Halles and was defeated. He fled back to Sardis and Sardis was put under siege. But Sardis was built on a very... A great ridge it was built on the top of a cliff. Those who have been to Sardis know all about how impregnable the, the fortress of Sardis was. And so Cyrus could do nothing more than to watch the city carefully. And then one day, one of the Lydian soldiers leaning over the wall dropped his helmet and it rolled right down the edge of the cliff to the bottom. And the, and, the, and the Persian soldier watching him saw what happened. He actually found that there was a secret... Um, ridge or secret little part in the cliffs that you could climb down and there was this secret path that you could use to get into the city rather than try and attack the gates up the up the ridge so there was a back door to the city that they discovered by accident just by watching this soldier who dropped his helmet so in the night they they, they got up that that gutter and they got into the city and the battle for the city of sardis went on and of course, you can imagine, once the troops got inside and opened the gates, fierce fighting broke out right through the city of Sardis. Well, when the king heard that the city had been breached, he decided to commit suicide. And this is a, a, a painting in, in Paris that you can go and see. 
from about 500 BC, and it shows that Croesus, having decided that he was going to lose this battle, decided to burn himself with his gold. And so he had a funeral pyre made up, put his gold in it, and had himself burnt to death, which is interesting. We've just lost the picture. Back again. Okay. Okay, so that's the end of the kingdom of Lydia. So they took over all of Turkey, and having now surrounded Babylon, being the Medes and the Persians on the east, now I've got the western side of Babylon, he decides to concentrate on Babylon. And, and I'm sure you know the facts about Babylon, an enormous city, 45 miles of walls, some, some places the walls 200 feet high, with a river running through it and great gates on down the, the, the riverbank so that you couldn't get up from the river. It was a city that was deemed to be almost unconquerable. And they were very proud of it. The Hanging Gardens is well known. The great um, mosques that they had there, you know, the, the um, ziggurats that they built, all of the things about Babylon were magnificent. Well, we know what Cyrus did, what he decided to do, because he couldn't conquer the walls, he couldn't batter down the gates, he decided to get rid of the river. And so they diverted, over some time they arranged to divert the water of the river Euphrates around the city into a reservoir and lower the water level. This was the night of Belshazzar's feast. The night when the Babylonians thought they were totally secure inside their city. When they were actually bringing out of the house of the king's storehouse the gold and silver items of the temple. They were blaspheming the God of Israel. And their end had come. And the crucial hour of Babylon had arrived. And we know what Cyrus had done. He drained the water down to a level that they could actually wade up the river. And remarkably, the gates were not shut. Now, God had predicted that not only would the river be dried up through his servant, Cyrus, but the gates would be opened. Some historians say that he must have had spies inside the city. Perhaps the angels also made sure that those gates were left open. Whatever it was, when Cyrus' men marched up there, the gates were open and they got entry to the city and that was the end of Babylon. He conquered Babylon, killed Belshazzar and took over that city. And so, inheriting the kingdom of the Babylonians, this Cyrus the Great formed the Archimedes Empire, as it was called. He conquered the Medians, the Lydians and the Babylonians. The empire was later extended by other rulers of Persia. And, of course, in the end, went right across to Greece itself. But that's not our subject tonight. What Cyrus then set about doing was setting up a magnificent empire. You can read in the book of Esther about the way the, the, the Persian Empire worked. It had a lot of mechanisms which are very similar to our modern democracies. It was very well structured in its organisation. It had good roads, a good postal service, 127 provinces, Local governors allowed to rule. Three presidents under the king, one of which, of course, was Daniel. He retained those three ribs. The bear had the three ribs of the Babylonian structure kept. But the remarkable thing about the kingdom of Persia was that it was the policy of Cyrus to allow people to rule their own country. So what he would do was to, to let the people go back to their lands. He would restore them to where they'd been taken by the Babylonians. You might remember the Babylonian policy was to remove people from their territories. So the Samaritans were five nations brought from the east and dumped in Israel, and the Jews were dumped in Babylon. That was the Babylonian policy. The policy of Cyrus was put people back in their own country, 
Back in the land they understand. Let them worship their own gods and have Persian governors just on hand to make sure that they pay their taxes and that order is kept. There was no need for Persian occupation armies. You read the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. There were no Persian guards. There was no Persian standing army there. There was a Persian governor that when a matter needed to be decided, wrote back to, to, to Persia for a decision. But that was the system that Cyrus brought in. It was a very uh, a noble system of looking after the inhabitants of his kingdom. And it, it, it actually gave them hundreds of years of peace. And, and so different to the way Babylon got carried away with itself and its own wealth and its own pride. And God brought them down. The Persian kingdom was one of the, the great kingdoms of the ancient world when it came to the way that it was conducted. Now I want you to come back to the book of Ezra. Because the next stage of the work of Cyrus we find in the book of Ezra. When you get to the book of Ezra, you're dealing at the top of the page with 2 Chronicles. And you may have noticed that the end of the 2 Chronicles from verse 22 and the first uh, three or four verses of um, Ezra are exactly the same. But remarkably it says in Ezra 1 verse 1, Now in the first year of the king of Persia, that the word of Yahweh by the mouth of Jerah might be fulfilled, Yahweh stirred up the spirit of Cyrus. Now the first year is the first year ruling from Babylon. He'd already been king for years before this, but it was now ruling from Babylon. Okay, so that's the important thing. The first year of Cyrus king of Persia, that the word of Yahweh by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled. Jeremiah. Not so much Isaiah. The word of Yahweh by the mouth of Jeremiah. Remember Jeremiah in chapter 29 had said to the Jews going to Babylon, build houses, plant vineyards, you'll be there for 70 years. So God was now fulfilling the prophecy of Jeremiah about the end of the 70 years of captivity. He stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia. How did God do that? Well, we believe, and I think it's quite supportable, that it was done by the work of Daniel and perhaps Ezra. Ezra being a, a young priest at this stage, one who would lead the second Aaliyah going up to the land in later years, but also Daniel, who was one of the presidents that they retained. And very likely, Daniel had shown him the works and the words of Isaiah. You can imagine a Gentile king being presented with a prophecy of Isaiah where his own name has been written down 170 years before. And the work that he was going to do was written down 170 years before. And these are the most amazing words. Look what he said in his proclamation in verse 2. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, Yahweh, God of heaven, hath given me all the kingdoms of the earth. Not many Gentile kings would have the humility to say that. He hath charged me to build a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. You see, he's actually heard what has been said by the prophet Isaiah. And so he gives the Jews the opportunity. Whoever will go back, let him go up to Jerusalem and build the house of Yahweh, the God of Israel, for he is the God which is in Jerusalem. He strengthened their hand, and later on in the chapter, he brought all the vessels out of the house and gave them to them. You know, the proclamation of the decree of Cyrus is very remarkable from this point of view. You see, he said, the God of heaven hath given him this 
tasked to do. He's charged me to build him a house which is Jerusalem. You know, that shows a tremendous presence, not only to recognize the God of Israel as the one true God, but an obedience to what God had written about him. And so he gave that proclamation in BC 538 or thereabouts that they could go back and rebuild their temple. And they handed over the vessels of gold that had been so abused by Belshazzar in his feast. They brought out of the treasure house all the spoons and the basins and the vessels that they would use when the temple was reconstructed. And they were handed over to the hands of the Jews to take back. You know, he was a remarkable man in obeying what God had determined for him to do. His policy was written on the, on the Cyrus cylinder. I used to look at the pictures of this and think it's about the size of a wine barrel. But when you go to the British Museum and you actually see the thing, it's about this long. It's only a little, like a little tiny cask, a little small thing about that big. And it's amazing to think that this has been preserved since the days of Cyrus, way back in BC 530. In that particular Cyrus cylinder, he writes about his policy of restoration of people to their own territories. The gods who dwelt there, that's in the conquered nations, are returned to their home and let them move into an eternal dwelling. All their people I collected and brought them back to their homes. So he actually defines on this Cyrus cylinder his policy of reparation, bringing people back to where they came from. And if they want to take their gods with them, let them take their gods with them. So it was a, a, very, a very enlightened policy that they had in the Persian Empire under Cyrus. So that was his policy towards the nations. And so Cyrus performed what God had brought him to do. I want to talk now about Cyrus being the type of Christ, the conqueror. Cyrus did not type the Lord Jesus Christ in his sacrifice, as did Joseph or Isaac. Cyrus typifies the Lord Jesus Christ as the conqueror of Babylon and the restorer of the captive scattered Jews. Some of the factors we read about Cyrus are these. His name means the son, that's the Persian name. And of course, Christ is the son of righteousness that will arise with healing in his wings, says Malachi 4 verse 2. The Hebrew for Cyrus is Korish, which means like unto the heir, which of course indicates that he's like the heir of all things, the Lord Jesus Christ. Raised up by God for God's righteousness. Let's go back to Isaiah and look at some of these verses as we go along. For example, in Isaiah 45 and verse 13, I have raised him up in righteousness and I will direct all his ways. So he's raised up for God's righteousness. All his ways are directed, made straight, it says in verse 13. In verse 2, I will go before thee, says God, and make sure these things happen. And you can imagine, can't you, an angel being dispatched to go out before Cyrus to make sure everything fell into place as God had planned it should. God calls him my servant. You know, these are wonderful things about this man. He's called the right hand of Yahweh's righteousness in chapter 41 and verse 10. He's called Yahweh's anointed, the Messiah, or the Greek has it, the Christos, in chapter 45, verse 1. 
He's called Yahweh's shepherd, a title he shares only with the Lord Jesus Christ. He's called Yahweh's arm and Yahweh's righteousness in chapter 41 and chapter 48. He's called Yahweh's sanctified one in chapter 13 verse 3. And someone who was precious in the sight of God in chapter 13 verse 12. You know, an amazing list of titles that God bestows upon this man. But here's some other things we know about Cyrus as a type of Christ. He had an elite guard, an elite bodyguard, a highly trained group of people who were the centerpiece of his army, who were the best of his soldiers. And because they were so good in warfare, they were called the immortals. What an amazing thing that is, that this type of the Lord Jesus Christ should have around him a band called the immortals. And we read in Revelation, those that are with Jesus are called the faithful, the called, and the chosen. And they become his immortal servants. And it says of Cyrus about these 10,000 immortals, he knew every one of them by name, which seems an incredible feat. And the Lord Jesus Christ, the great shepherd, said, My sheep know me, and I call them by name. And something Cyrus was noted for was his ability to know their names. His motives were obedience to God. God hath charged me. He's commanded me to build this house. And it makes the point in, in the book of Isaiah that he did not do it for personal gain. It was not perhaps in the best interest of Persia to give back all that treasure from the king's house. But he did what God said. And you see, he was obedient to the will of God. There was no personal gain in it for him. He dried up the Euphrates. You know, Richard reminds you, doesn't know, of, of Revelation 16, that the drying up of Euphrates was the beginning of the fall of Babylon. He prepared the way of the kings of the east, a righteous man from the east, taking over and bringing kings into the territory of Babylon. He captured the gates of brass and iron of his enemies in chapter 45 and verse 2. And he executes God's counsel upon false religion. And he brought down the idols of Babylon. He brought down the gods of Babylon and put them to shame. And proclaimed that Yahweh, he is the true God, the God of Israel. What a remarkable man he was. He brought down the pride of Babylon. He brought good tidings to Jerusalem. He freed Jewish captives from Babylon. It's amazing we read in Revelation 18, the cry that goes out at the time of Armageddon. Come out of here, my people. Leave Babylon. God appeals to the Jewish people still in Europe at the time of Armageddon. Come out of her, my people, that you be not partakers of her sins. And those Jews who left were the ones who had their hearts in Abraham's land. And then he made sure that the temple in Jerusalem was rebuilt. And eventually under the Persians, the walls were built also. And the city was restored. What a remarkable type this man was of the great conquering work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Have a look at chapter 41 and verse 27 of Isaiah. It says this, The first shall say to Zion, Behold, behold them, and I will give to Jerusalem one that bringeth good tidings. And you see, God had provided Cyrus to give the good tidings. You can imagine when Cyrus stood up before the Jews that were assembled in Babylon, and read out the proclamation of his decree, what good tidings that really was. He was, in all senses, a remarkable man. 
a remarkable king for a king of the Gentiles. One thing we notice about Cyrus, if you, if you Google him up, you'll find that he's actually noted for his noble sayings, his wise sayings. I've just got a few of them here, which I thought were quite interesting, from a man who was a Gentile king. On the left, Cyrus, a success should always call for showing greater kindness, generosity and justice. Only people lost in the darkness treat it as an occasion for greater greed. Interesting, isn't it? Here's a man that had everything at his feet and yet he saw that it was an occasion for kindness, generosity and justice. Diversity in counsel, unity in command. In other words, his style of leadership was to ask to bring his generals into the matter, to consult with other people, get their wisdom, but then take control of it. Now that's perhaps uh, not something that is applicable to the life in Christ, but it's just an interesting attitude to the way he ruled his kingdom. A man's enjoyment of all good things is in exact proportion to the pains he has undergone to gain them. A lot of wisdom in that. We love ourselves, notwithstanding our faults. And we ought to love our friends in like manner. Again, you know, not the sort of wisdom you expect from a powerful Gentile king. You cannot be buried in obscurity. You're exposed upon a grand theatre to the view of the world. If your actions are upright and benevolent, be assured they will augment your power and happiness. See, that's the policy adopted to the way that he ruled the world. Whenever you can, act as a liberator. Freedom, dignity, wealth, these three together constitute the greatest happiness of humanity. If you bequeath all three to your people, their love for you will never die. And a lot of these sentiments, of course, are the way that a king would see his world. But this was a very different kingdom to the most of the conquering kingdoms that the world had seen. And the Persians brought an element of nobility and civility to the world, which has hardly been equaled in the, in the kingdoms of men ever since. For a Gentile king, Cyrus was given with remarkable qualities. We read that he was temperate, sober, and self-controlled as an individual. He was noted for his kindness to women. He refused pomp and ceremony as much as he could. He was well-mannered to everybody and very rational in his reasoning. He was accessible to his troops at any time. And he was always regarded as being noble and dignified. So why do we look at this prophecy of Cyrus? This is the lesson we need to take away, brethren and sisters. The Jews, down through history, resented the prophecy about Cyrus. Before it came to pass, and after it came to pass, they resented it because it took a Gentile shepherd king, a Gentile Messiah, to give them back their temple and their city and their land. And that went against the grain with the Jews. They thought only Jews could do things right. But how would their kings let them down? Their kings had been total utter failures. And God took a Gentile king and made him their shepherd and their Messiah. And they always didn't like that. So we read that, you know, Cyrus was raised up. Whoops. He was raised up to do these things. Isaiah illustrates God's power to predict and to name Cyrus, to predict the exact way he would take Babylon and restore Israel. The precise fulfilment of these things proves that Yahweh foreknows and controls all history and all destiny.
You see, that's what we have to take away, brethren and sisters. You read Isaiah 53 about the work of Christ. The suffering part of Isaiah 53 was fulfilled to the letter. Crucified among two thieves, as a lamb to the slaughter. The latter part of Isaiah 53 is yet to come to pass. And if we can see that the prophecy of Cyrus came to pass, if the prophecies about Israel have come to pass, if the prophecies about Christ have come to pass, then everything you read in chapter 54 to 66 will also come to pass. And you see, it's that confidence we have in prophecy. When we see things like this, how that God predicted the man so far ahead of his time, God is in control, brethren and sisters. And all the words that God has spoken about the future will come to pass in their due time. And so he was raised up for Israel's sake. God was not limited to the Jewish people to affect his purpose. God can create any rulers he wants to, to, to perform his will. And we have seen these exact fulfillments of prophecy come to pass. And we're still seeing them, brethren and sisters, coming to pass in the earth today. Let's be confident in what God has written. Let's look back at the past and look to the future with the confidence that God is very much in control. For the great man that he was, for the great conquest that he made, for the great work he performed on behalf of God in those days, he died. His tomb has been plundered. They can't find his body, but he died. And the tomb of Cyrus is still there today, although the Iranians are talking about burying it under a dam. But the tomb of Cyrus is there. And Cyrus died. And he remains in the grave. Our Lord Jesus Christ came out of the grave. Our Lord Jesus Christ has begun the process of immortality. And we look for the day when Christ will come back to make his servants his immortals. I'd like you to finish with me reading Isaiah chapter 42, verse 1 to 4. Talking about the Lord Jesus Christ. Behold my servant, whom I uphold. Mine elect in whom my soul delights, I have put my spirit upon him. He shall bring forth judgment to the Gentiles. He shall not cry nor lift up nor cause his voice to be heard in the streets. He wasn't a political agitator. A bruised reed shall he not break. And the smoking flax shall he not quench. He reached down to the poor and downtrodden. He shall bring forth judgment and of truth, or victory as it is in the Hebrew. He shall not fail nor discouraged, till he hath set judgment in the earth, and the isles shall wait for his law. Brethren and sisters, Cyrus is dead, Christ is alive, and God is very much in control.